Okay, we started a new series in the book of Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel. A popular book called Ezekiel. Are we on? This is running. We're starting at chapter 7, Ezekiel chapter 7. Where are we so far? Well, we met this fellow named Ezekiel. He was taken captive uh, by King of Babylon with a group of other folks and hauled off to Babylon. And there in a foreign country far from home, never to return there again, Ezekiel uh, has a vision of God. In chapter 1, we saw Ezekiel through his eyes as he saw things that nobody's really ever seen before. And he explained it better than anybody else did. And you wonder right away when you see it, is that why God picked him? Because he's so observant and unusual, maybe. Uh, I'm sure there's more to it than that. Uh, But he got to see God in something that only a handful of people in the history of the world have seen. And then we looked at him last week. God said, now you're going to tell these people a message from me. Only thing is, I'm not going to let you talk. <laughs> so the poor fella wasn't allowed to talk, and so he acted out the message. And he wrote on a big clay tile, he drew a picture of the city of Jerusalem under siege, and he laid on one side for over a year, uh, every day laying on his side around that picture, trying to get across to the people who were with him that the city of Jerusalem was going to be under siege. And uh, then uh, he flipped over on the other side for 40 days. It's quite an unusual fellow. He made bread and had to eat just a little bit, a few ounces of bread and uh, half a pint of water was all he ate for that whole time as he's trying to get across to the people they're going to be starving when Jerusalem is under siege. And then we saw just the last few minutes last week, he shaved all his hair off. He burns a third of it, chopped a third of it up with a sword, took the third of it and threw it into the wind and blew away. And uh, he's communicating again without speaking, communicating to the people what's going to happen to the Jews. Uh, A lot of them died in the city of Jerusalem uh, and when Jerusalem was destroyed. And then uh, uh, some died of starvation, some died by the sword. And then, of course, they were taken off to Babylon, thrown off to the wind. And so the Jews were no longer in their homeland. They were spread all over the world at that point. And that's where we left off. Now we come to chapter 7. He's going to get a chance to talk now. But he, once he's told what he's going to say, he may not want to say it. <laughs> Poor Ezekiel. He seems like a fellow that really gets it. And you wonder what God's going to tell him next. Well, <clears throat> let's take a look because he's going to going to be able to talk, but he doesn't want to say what he's got to say. Here we go. Chapter 7 of Ezekiel, verse 1. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Also thou son of man, thus saith the Lord God to the land of Israel, An end, an end is come on the four corners of the land. Now is the end come upon thee, and I will send my anger upon thee, will judge thee according to thy ways, will recompense upon thee all thy abominations. When I shall not spare thee, neither will I have pity, but I will recompense thy ways upon thee, and my abominations shall be in the midst of thee, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God, an evil, and only evil, behold, is come, the end is come, the end is come, it watches for thee, behold, it is come. How's that for a message? Get up and preach. The end has come. And he says it over and over again. It's over. God says it's over. It's finished. It's over. The end. The end. The end. In case you didn't get it, it's the end. All right? So there's your message, Ezekiel. That's what you're going to say. It's over. You've come to the end. It's the end for Jerusalem and for Israel. It's over. 
All that was is going to be destroyed. It's over. Now, Ezekiel really doesn't want to preach that message. Who does, right? Who does? And it's more than just it's hard to preach. He doesn't want it personally to happen. That's his home. That's where he was born in Jerusalem. And that's where he grew up. And he doesn't want his, his homeland to be destroyed. And God's saying, we're going to destroy it. There's going to be nothing left of it. And so I think the question that Ezekiel would ask is, it seems really harsh to say it's the end, it's the end, it's the end, it's the end, it's the end. Why? Why? See, the issue that came up is interesting for you and I today. Uh, the issue that came up was patriotism. Are you a patriot for your country? And Ezekiel said, yeah, that's my home. I've been hauled off captive. I'm against my will. Way, ways in Babylon. I don't want to be here. I want to go home. I want my home to do well. I want my home to thrive. And uh, so God's saying, well, it's not going to. It's going to be destroyed and smashed and crushed in little pieces. And so it's hard to hear if you're a patriot that your country is going to be destroyed. You're not going home, Ezekiel. There's nothing to go home to. And so... That's your message. And if you're a patriot, that's a tough message. And some of the real issues that came up had to do with patriotism. Jeremiah, who's a prophet back at Jerusalem, keeps telling the same thing. Uh, Babylon's going to destroy us. We might as well give in to them. We're going to be destroyed. And they keep accusing him of being a traitor. You're a traitor to Jerusalem with that message. You're a traitor, Jeremiah. And he got, he got beat up pretty good, poor fella. Ezekiel's sick, given the same matches. Of course, he's over in Babylon, long ways from home. Hard for them to hear that the home that they were forcibly removed from is going to be destroyed. And so Ezekiel said, well, you know, why? Why? It would be a reasonable question to ask if you're a patriot. Now, patriotism is a good thing. There's nothing wrong with patriotism. Right? It's a normal desire. It ought to be in people's hearts. That your home, your homeland, place where you live, should thrive and do well. Should be able to raise a family safely and securely in your home. You should have freedom in your home. Patriotism is a good thing. Right? We want our homeland to do well and to strive. When is patriotism got to stop? It's got to stop when it's God over country. Right? So uh, you can be patriotic to your country, but then there's God to consider. What will you do with God? God is number one. And so if your patriotism means you've got to turn against God, then we're not going to do that. And so patriotic Ezekiel... He's really thinking, well, you know, I want my country to do well. I want it to get better and get fixed and get straightened out. And God says, I'm afraid that can't happen. So your loyalty to your country is just not going to work because of what they did. And so uh, Ezekiel has got this message to give and in his own heart he's not quite sure about it. Not quite sure about it. He trusts God but he's just not sure what to think about it. So God is going to give Ezekiel a lesson so that he knows what happened and why it got to be this bad. And he's going to show him personally what happened 
and uh, uh, take him right to the scene of the crime, if you will. I'm going to show you Ezekiel. So when you're done and you see what happened, I'm going to give you a good look at what happened. Then you'll be able to preach this message more convincingly. Because you'll know uh, that I'm doing what I have to do. God is going to pass judgment, and there's a reason for it. And so he's going to show Ezekiel something uh, that uh, Ezekiel needs to see. And, of course, he's going to tell us what's going on. So we can see, too, that there's a line where we cannot turn our back on God for our country. Can't do that. And so Ezekiel is going to have a lesson and it's crazy stuff again you know Ezekiel you say man this guy does crazy stuff shaving his head with a sword <laughs> chopping his hair up in little pieces you know cooking on cow dung uh, laying on his side for over a year and rolling over on the other side. I mean, he's just done odd, unusual things. And he's, something about him is that he seems to be able to take it. He must be an unusual character. So get ready. Here we go again for another crazy ride. Chapter 8. Chapter 8 now. As God shows Ezekiel why it's going this far. What brought it to this point where God finally had enough? Chapter 8, right in the first verse. Came to pass in the sixth year, in the sixth month, in the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house, and the elders of Judah sat before me, that the hand of the Lord God fell there upon me, and I beheld the likeness of the appearance of fire, from the appearance of his loins, even downward of fire, and from his loins upward is the appearance of brightness as the color of amber. It's the same vision he saw in chapter 1. Now you remember he saw those four creatures with four faces and four wings and human hands and calf feet. And he saw them moving and moving, making great noises, their wings moving. Then he looked above them and there was God sitting on a throne, flames from his waist up, flames from his waist down. And now he sees God again. This is a vision of God. In verse 3, he put forth the form of a hand, took me by a lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between the earth and heaven, brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the door at the inner gate that looketh toward the north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provoketh to jealousy. So, God said, okay, here we go, Ezekiel, and he grabs him by the hair. <laughs> Naturally, it's Ezekiel going to do something unusual. And he grabs him by the hair and lifts him up and takes him to Jerusalem. Now, he says he's in a vision of God, and this is not simple to understand, and I don't really understand it. And I'm just going to try to explain as best as I can what's happening. You want to know, did he really go to Jerusalem? I don't know. I don't know. I think so. But I don't know. I can't say for sure. But I think so. <laughs> but I don't know. He picked him up, he said, in a vision. Now, you have dreams. You and I have dreams as a common thing for people to have a dream. Sometimes you wake up and a dream is kind of fuzzy, right? You just about remember it before you come in. Oh, it wasn't too exciting anyway. It's gone. But every once in a while, you have one that really gets down inside of you. It wakes you right up and you woke up sometimes afraid, sometimes uh, 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 all kinds of emotions sometimes wake up angry uh, something in your dream was very real different from other dreams and those dreams make a tremendous impression upon you and they can be very powerful those kind of things I've had a couple of dreams lots of dreams in my life of course every night it's something but uh, I had a few dreams in my life where it's very 
uh, strong impressions of them. After both my parents died, I had a dream about them, each one. I always thought God sent me the dream because he just wanted to help me to know. Uh, and I remember waking up and saying to myself, I'm not sure if they're dead or alive. The dream is so real. And then you tell yourself, I know they're dead. <laughs> I know they died. But man, it sure feels like they're alive. And you have to tell yourself, okay, here's Eric, come back to reality. That was a dream, come back to reality. And I think God's saying to me, uh, they're not dead, they're just not here. <laughs> uh, they're not dead. And so anyway, that's just, you have those dreams and they're very vivid, don't you? Well, this is more vivid than that. And Paul said, when I had one of these visions, I don't know whether I was there or not. I can't tell. It was so real that I don't know whether I had my body or not. And so God is taking Ezekiel for a ride by the hair. He's in Babylon, long ways away. He's going to take him all the way back to Jerusalem, his hometown. And he's going to show them some things. So he grabs them by the hair, goes flying through the air till they get to Jerusalem. Uh, and you want to know if it's real. Well, some of the things we're about to see are very real. Some of the things we're about to see is going to be names named. So they are very real. It's not like a dream. It's, it's, it's God getting inside of Ezekiel and it's just as real as can be to him. All right. Was he in Jerusalem? I would say, I don't know. I don't know. I can't say. I don't know. I think he was. Because of what you're about to see. Maybe God did the whole thing in his mind. I don't know. And so we can't really tell. And it's really not our job to try and figure that out. Just look at what happens. And uh, don't worry about whether he's actually there or not. It's real. Let's take it that way, okay? So in order to grasp what we're about to look at, we've got to have a couple of pictures here. And what we need is a picture of the temple. Now... Uh, we know that the temple and the tabernacle were built under the same type of construction. And the, ta the tabernacle was instruction by God to Moses to make a tent where they would worship. And the tent door faced to the east. And so this would be east, north, south, and west. Okay, and There would be an opening, whether it be the tabernacle, the tent, or Solomon's temple. Solomon built a permanent one. Would have the same things. As you went into this first is open courtyard, this is an open courtyard here, there, the first thing you come to is an altar. That's where a sacrifice is made. Right? And then you come to a curtain behind which only a priest can go. Any priest can go there, but he has to be a priest. And on this side, there's a table. It's got bread on it. There's 12 loaves of bread. And on this side is a candelabra, all right, a special candelabra with uh, oil going to it so that the flames are always lit. And then right here is a little altar where they burn incense. And so... Uh, that's just a small altar. This is, of course, a large one. There's a small one where they burn incense. Now, once we go into the next section called the Holy of Holies, this is the Holy of Holies, uh, what's in there is the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. Like I said before, if you can't get it from the Bible, you got it from Indiana Jones, right? You look for the Ark of the Covenant. All right, so the, the Ark of the Covenant is in there. Um, and the two significant things about it is that it's cover over the top of it. It's a, it's, a, it's a wooden box overlaid with gold. 
and the cover of it, it has a cover on top of it, and the name of the cover is called the Mercy Seat. And on the Mercy Seat, uh, there are two golden angels with their wings stretched forth, one's facing this way, the other one's that way, and their wingtips touch these golden angels, and they are ch- they're, they're cherubs, Golden angels on top of the box. And so the, the cover is called the mercy seat. And then these angels' cover are made of gold, are, are reaching towards each other, their wings are touching. Now, what's the significance of this? Uh, it it's, ought to be plain to see. It's made so it's simple, so you can get it. We're going to approach God. We're going to come to God, all right? So we're going to make our approach to God. And as we do, the first thing we meet is the altar. We have to deal with sin. Before you can talk to God and have a conversation and relationship with God, we've got to deal with the problem of sin. And so that's the first thing you meet when you approach into having a, uh, an experience with God. You've got to make a sacrifice. In those days, you're going to take a lamb or a bull or a goat or even a a dove and sacrifice it on the altar for their sin. Of course, now that's all gone. Jesus became the sacrifice for you and me. So we approach God. Now we're going to go deal with the first problem, our sin. We're going to come into this room. We got the 12 loaves of bread here. We got the candlelight over here. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. All right. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. That's a basic life sustaining thing, is bread. And Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. And so as we approach, take care of our sin issue, go in to get farther and closer to God, we have spiritual sustenance by the bread of life, and then we have a light that comes into our mind. We have illumination. We understand, and God helps us to understand. And then we go to the altar of sacrifice, not sacrifice, but sacrifice of incense, and that is, we light it on fire and the smoke goes up like prayer. And so here you are, you want to approach God, take care of your sin, deal with that first, and then you're going to get sustenance for your soul, light for your mind, and you're going to turn that into prayer up to God. God is on the other side of this curtain, and his presence is on top of the mercy seat. So when God... They first put this together way back with Moses. They built that ark. They put it in there. And God came into there. And his presence rested on there in the form of light. You heard the name Shekinah. The Shekinah glory of God is light. And so uh, as you were coming in, you're praying to God. He's on the other side of the curtain. And you're approaching him that way. He's sitting on a mercy seat. Because he's going to dispense mercy and help to us when we pray. So this is very simply laid out. The basic spiritual experiences that we're going to have with God. Deal with our sin. Get growth for ourselves in the form of that bread of life. Have the light of the world shining in our hearts. And we reach up to God and pray. He's here on the mercy seat dispensing mercy and helping us. That's the spiritual experience. That's what it stands for, right? Now, why do we need this? Because God picked up Ezekiel by the hair and took him here. And the first stop, he puts him right there. So the first stop is number one, right there. There's a there's like an entryway into there where Ezekiel would have been because he was in he was a priest he would be allowed to go in there and change the bread they changed the bread so it never got stale and they kept the light flowing all the time and they lit the incense so he's been in here before God stops him right at the doorway. His first stop, picks him up by hair, takes him to Jerusalem, sets him in that doorway right there, and what does he see? All right. He took 
verse 3 again. He put forth the form of a hand, took me by a lock of my head. The Spirit lifted me up between the earth and heaven, brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, and the door of the inner gate that looketh toward the north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provoketh to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel is there, according to the vision that I saw in the plain. All right, so... The glory of God is in the temple. We know it would be here. All right? So there's the glory of God. He expects it to be there in the Holy of Holies. But he says there is something that he calls here uh, an image of jealousy. An image of jealousy. So the first thing I want to show you this, Ezekiel. I'm going to set you right there because the thing you're looking for is right here. It's an image of jealousy. We would call it an idol. There's an idol. The idol is right there. Right there. How, what's that all about? How'd that get to be there? Well, it got put there. It got put there by... Uh, a fella, Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles, chapter number thirty-three. Back a few pages to Chronicles, Second Chronicles, chapter number thirty-three. I'm going back a few years in history here from Ezekiel. And uh, the kings of Judah, of the northern, of the southern kingdom, there were some pretty good ones, and some not so hot, and some really bad ones. And then there long come a real good one, Hezekiah. He's a good king. It says he's just like David. His son is a rotten apple, good for nothing. His name is Manasseh. And that's what we're about to read about. Chapter 33 of 2 Chronicles. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, like to the abominations of the heathen, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. He did everything bad that you can think of, and then he thought of some more to do. He was a really rotten guy. Verse 3, he built again the high places which Hezekiah had father had broken down. He reared up the altars for Balaam and made groves and worshipped the host of heaven and served them. They've been fighting against Baal ever since Gideon. And now he's bringing it all back. He built altars in the house of the Lord. Wherein the Lord had said in Jerusalem shall be my name forever. He built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. So he's got altars here and here. Made for worshiping Baal. He caused his children to pass through the fire in the valley in the son of Hinnom. That means he burned his own children alive as a sacrifice to Baal. He observed times, he used enchantments, and used witchcraft, and dealt with a familiar spirit with wizards. He got messed up in the black arts, dealing with worshiping of Satan. He wrought much evil in the sight of the Lord, so to provoke him to anger, and he set a carved image, the idol which he had made, in the house of God, which God said to David, to Solomon, his son, in this house in Jerusalem, which I have chosen before all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. So, Manasseh says, not only am I going to worship anything I can think of, I'm going to set me a great big old idol right there. And there's a big old idol that Manasseh made standing right next to the altar of sacrifice. And so Ezekiel gets set down by that door. He says, take a look at that thing. And there's this big old idol, Manasseh's idol, standing right there. There's the altar of sacrifice for sin. And there's this big old idol. That ain't supposed to be there. Right, that's not supposed to be. Let's see what else happens. Back in Ezekiel 8. Verse 
Verse 5, he said unto me, Son of man, lift up thine eyes now away towards the north. So I lifted up my eyes away towards the north. Behold, northward at the gate of the altar, this image of jealousy in the entry. So there he is. He's right there. There's a gate there, and the idol's right inside the gate on the north side. He said, furthermore unto me, son of man, seest thou what they do? Even the great abominations of the house of Israel committeth here, that I should go far off from my sanctuary. But turn yet again, and I shall see greater abominations. I'll show you something worse. Say, oh, that's pretty bad. Well, I'll show you something worse. Here we go. Verse 7. He brought me to the door of the court. When I look, behold, a hole in the wall. And so he's out along, uh, probably outside here, along this wall here. All right. Now, when it was just a tent, of course, that's all that was there. When Solomon made a temple... He began to add things to it. And along these edges in the years of Solomon, there were built what I would call an apartment. Uh, the priests, the Levites, uh, did like uh, three-month terms. And so they'd come and they'd work for three months and then they'd go home. Come back and work and go home. And they had apartments, places where they could stay. And so God takes them outside and he says, take a look, dear. What do you see? I see the hole in the wall. There's a hole in the wall there. Yeah, okay. And so, uh, verse 8, he said to me, son of man, dig now in the wall. And when I digged in the wall, behold, a door. So there's a hole in the wall. He starts to clear that away. And he uncovers a door. In verse 9, he said to me, go in. Behold the wicked abominations that they do there. So I went in and saw, behold, every form of creeping thing, the abominable beasts, all the idols of the house of Israel, portrayed upon the wall round about. So all over the wall are paintings and pictures, drawings. And... uh, Verse 10, so I went in and saw, behold, every form of creeping things, abominable beasts, all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed on the wall round about. And so they're pictures of animals, all kinds of animals, any kind of animal. There stood before them 70 men of the ancients of the house of Israel, and the midst of them said, Jehaz Aniah, the son of Saphan, with every man with his censer in his hand, a thick cloud of incense went up. And he said to me, Son of man, hast thou seen that the ancients of the house of Israel do in the dark, every man in the chambers of his imagery? For they say, The Lord seeth us not, the Lord has forsaken the earth. So, digs through the hole in the wall, goes in, and now there's drawings and paintings all over the wall of animals and creeping things and any old thing you can think of. And the reminder of, and it's probably where the idea came from, is Egypt. Now if you go any time today, you could go to the tombs in Egypt, and you can go to the pyramids in Egypt. What you, what's on the wall? Drawings. Paintings all over the walls and these tombs. Of what? Of animals. Animals and all sorts of things are all over the wall. All right, and so here they are, hidden. Now that's why there's a little hole, see? A little hole. He digs a hole away, and there's a door. Somebody's trying to hide the door. All right, so they fill it with dirt, just a little hole there. He digs away. Hey, there's a door here. Yeah, somebody's trying to hide it. What are they trying to hide? Well, go in and see. He walks in and here's these leaders of Israel. And he even mentions one by name. Saphan. We haven't got time to go look at it. But Saphan was a wonderful fella who during the reign of King Josiah, who was just a young boy, found in the temple a Bible. They'd lost it for years. It's amazing, isn't it? They lost the Bible for years. He found it and he brought it to young Josiah. He said, I found the Bible. Let's read it. And so Saphan read it to Josiah and they went and did everything it told them to do. Saphan was a wonderful fellow. Here's his son right there 
burning incense to alligators and beasts and pictures on the wall. What happened when one generation got lost? His father was a great man of God who found in the temple the Bible and restored the Bible to King Josiah. His son is burning incense to pictures on the wall. And what does he say? We don't want anybody to see. We're doing this secret. Secret. He calls it the chamber of images. Just a little warning here, my friends, for you and I. We got a chamber of image. It's your imagination and your brain. And you can write whatever you want on it. You can write things on your brain and they will stay there for a long time. But be careful what you put in there. Be careful what you put in there. There's things, if you see them once, you'll never forget them. Better to never have seen them. It's an image stuck there. Now they're supposed to be at this altar burning incense as a symbol of prayer to God. They're praying to the animals on the wall. All right. Does it get worse? Yeah, let's go on a little farther. Verse 13. He said all to me, turn ye again and you shall see greater abominations than, than they do. And he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which was towards the north. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. And so he comes up to this north gate again here. And there's ladies here inside there who are weeping. There's an idol uh, called Tammuz. And they try to trace exactly where he comes from. Uh, the name is hard to trace exactly, but it doesn't matter because it's a common theme through most of it. Adonis, uh, that kind of thing of physical uh, uh, love, if you want to call it that. And they cry. They cry for the idol. And the idea is that the idol is there dry-eyed. And if they cry enough, maybe the idol start crying and they'll all be happy because it came back to life. And that's actually how they worked it. And uh, they worked as prostitutes, is what they were. They were prostitutes inside uh, the place there. I, when I was down in Pennsylvania at the Frank, Frank Lloyd Wright House, uh, they had a statue in the corner that he added to there. And they said, when it rains outside, the, uh, they didn't call it an idol, the statue cries. And he had it so that when the rainwater came down, it went through a little tube and came into the statue. And whenever it was raining outside, the statue was crying. And so that's what these ladies are weeping for, the dead goddess of love. And they try to bring it back to life by acting as prostitutes. How's that for the temple? Not going good. Let's go on. Verse 15. He said unto me, Hast thou seen this, son of man? Turn yet again. You see greater abominations as these. It's going to get worse. He brought me to the inner court of the Lord's house. And behold, at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, there were about five and twenty men with their backs towards the temple of the Lord, their faces toward the east, and they worshiped the sun toward the east. And so, he's brought him to the door here to look at the idol. Took him outside to dig through the wall, see the people burning incense uh, to pictures on the wall. Take him back over to the north gate, and there's the ladies weeping for Tamaz, the prostitutes. And now you're going to bring him inside the holy place here. And across in front of this curtain, there's 25 men. Facing east. And this is east. The door is always east. 
and they're facing east. And they are worshiping the rising sun. Sun rises in the east. They worship the sun as it come out. And the sun god had a name. It was Baal. Baal was called the sun god. They're worshiping Baal. Now you got to pay close attention. They're right by the curtain. They're worshiping Baal. Worshiping the rising sun facing the east. So, where does that leave us? Well, these guys have turned their back. God's right there. They turned their back on God, facing the opposite direction to worship the sun. And there's God right there. They need to turn around where they turn their back on God. <laughs> so, things are not good in the temple. You want to know why God said, that's the end. I'm not going to have it anymore. Well, look what's going on in there. They got idols set up in there. Uh, prostitutes set there. The leaders of the people secretly are in there burning incense to their pictures on the wall. And then there's a whole group of them with their back towards God worshiping uh, the sun. So what do we got? What does it all mean? Well, we start with the first one. Here's an idol here, and that idol is uh, next to the altar. When it comes to God, you cannot have divided loyalty. It can't be God and the idol. God don't have it. He's called it jealous. He's a jealous God. He's not jealous like you and I when we get crazy and, and stamp our feet and get angry. He's jealous because he's the one that made heaven. He's the one that made the earth. He's the one that created everything. And nobody else did. Nobody else can stand up and say they did. And so there shouldn't be any divided loyalty. You say, well, we don't have idols anymore. Oh, sure we do. We got plenty of idols. What's an idol anyway? An idol is something that is more fascinating to you than God. Whatever is more fascinating to you than God himself is an idol. And so if you ask the question, what do you do in your spare time? What do you think about when there's nothing to think about? What do you think about when you got spare time? When you wake up in the night, what do you think about? What consumes your energy and consumes your time? Is God first on that list? If he's not, then there's an idol. You used to sing an old rock and roll song, going to find myself an idol with a golden head. Leon Russell. No rockers here. Put it up on a shelf beside my bed. Now tell me, tell me, Mr. Idol, what do you see? And the idol says, I see all God's children looking at me. Or that is, there's something that's more fascinating than God himself. That's what an idol is, all right? And so right away we come to the altar of sacrifice where we're supposed to deal with our relationship with God and there's an idol right next to it. It's asking for our time. It's asking for our attention. It's demanding our energy. What is it that's more fascinating to you than God himself? Now the chambers of imagery. Like I said, our minds hold image. They're (coughs) praying to whatever. I'm going to tell you, I'll be real honest about it. If you go to a Catholic church, they'll pray to a saint. They'll pray to some other saint. I was in the hospital once and somebody lost something. Oh, you got to pray to Saint so-and-so. He's the one that helps you find stuff. <laughs> and they pray to Mary. And believe me, it's no different than that right there. 
They're praying everybody around and not God. All right, it's no different than that right there. Then we have this emotional experience. Some people think the ladies are crying and they're making themselves feel good. They have a good emotional cry and they'll feel better. Worship requires emotion. We got to have emotion when we worship. It can't be emotionless. By the same token, Jesus said what? I'm looking for a certain type of worshiper, people to worship me in spirit and in truth. That is, you've got to know why you're worshiping. Worshiping is not just an emotional, there, I feel better, I cried. That's not what it is. It is an intelligent view of God, and we look to God, and we realize who he is, what he's done for us, and that calls out gratitude, and that calls out a feeling of awe, and we worship God, all right? And then there's that willful stand as they stand with their backs towards God. There's God right there on the Ark of the Covenant doing what? Giving mercy he sits there to dispense mercy, and they've turned their back on him and said, we don't need that. We're going to worship the sun instead. Now, you, Ezekiel says, why have I got to be unpatriotic to my country? He says, that's what your leaders are doing. That's what the people who run the place do. They're offering incense to whatever they can. They're running a prostitution ring out there. In it. I'm not going to have it anymore. It's over. It's done. I won't have it anymore. I will not share this place that was made for me. So, the next thing that happens is really the important part of this vision. And it's pretty fascinating. Uh, let's look at chapter 9 quickly. I know I'm running out of time. Chapter 9, we read a couple verses and then go on. He cried also in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Cause them that have charge over the city to draw near every man with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the way of the higher gate, which lieth toward the north, and every man a slaughter weapon in his hands. One man among them was clothed with linen, with a writer's inkhorn by his side. They went in and stood beside the brazen altar. The glory of the Lord of Israel went up from the cherub where he was, to the threshold of the house, called to the man clothed in linen, which had the writer's inkhorn by his side. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark on the foreheads of men that sigh and cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. So six destroying angels come with their swords, and they're coming over this north. There's a high ground here off to the north. And they come over this hill here, and, they, and God says to them, get ready, I'm going to turn you loose on Jerusalem. But stop, just a minute, there's one of them, the number seven, he's got a pen with ink. And he says, go through the city of Jerusalem, and anybody that's sorry for this mess, anybody that's sick of it, anybody that's saying, oh God, I hate to go to the temple anymore, because what goes on there, put a mark on their head. And he puts a mark on their head. Because God's first move is to preserve the faithful people who stand by him. So he's preserving the faithful, and then he tells the angels, now go ahead. You see the mark? Save him. And so you understand quickly Satan is a counterfeiter. What does he do? Book of Revelation is a mark of the beast. Anybody that has the mark can trade, can do business. Satan counterfeits this little move in the book of Revelation. But anyway, that's not for now. <laughs> Now, there's something really important. Verse 3 again of chapter 9. The glory of the Lord of Israel went up from the cherubs whereupon he was to the threshold of the house. So, God was here. He said, when I came, when he brought me by the hair and set me there, I saw the glory of the Lord by the cherubs. And, and the cherubs are these angels on top of the Ark of the Covenant. 
And he said, I saw God, and I saw him lift up off the Ark of the Covenant, where his home was to be, where he was going to dispense mercy. He came up off the Ark of the Covenant, and he moved out, out here into the courtyard. All right, he moved out to the courtyard. Now we'll go to chapter 10. Verse 4. The glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and stood over the threshold of the house. And the house was filled with a cloud and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. And so when God moves from the Ark of the Covenant out here, uh, he brightens up the place with his presence. He brightens up the place and there's light there as God has moved. Right now we go down to verse 18. The glory of the Lord departed from off the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubims. Cherubims lifted up their wings and mounted up in the earth in my sight. And they went out. Wheels also were beside them. Everyone stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house. And the glory of the Lord was over and above them. So, God, first he saw him move off the Ark of the Covenant out into the courtyard. Now he moves over to the east gate, right there. And so God has now moved from the Ark of the Covenant to the middle of it by the north gate. Now he comes over to the east gate, and he's there. Now he's making these small moves. Move over here, move over there. All right, chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse number 22. Then did the cherubims lift up their wings and the wheels beside them. The glory of the Lord was over them above. The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city, stood on the mountain which was on the east side of the city. There's God. He's going to move again. This time he moves up to the mountain on the east side of the city. It's very significant because the mountain on the east side of the city is the Mount of Olives. You ever heard of that? And so God has moved from the ark into the courtyard, from the courtyard to the eastern door, and now he's going north and he's on top of the Mount of Olives. He's leaving. He's going to abandon the place. Slowly. He doesn't want to go. He wants those 25 men in there to turn around and look at him. He wants the guys burning incense to the idols to put their stuff out and get over where they belong at the altar of incense and burn incense there. And he wants to get rid of that idol by the, by the altar so you can come in and deal directly with God and get the things that divide your attention out of your mind. That's what God wants, so he's going to go slowly. He's already in mercy, sent somebody through the city to mark the foreheads of those who are faithful. And now he slowly comes over to here, over there, and now he's on the Mount of Olives. Significant because Jesus Christ will come over that same mountain when he gets to the peak of the mountain. You remember? He's about to ride the donkey into Jerusalem on the first Palm Sunday. He comes over the crest of the hill where he can see the city of Jerusalem in particular. He can look down on the temple and it says Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem. And he said there on that same Mount of Olives, if you only would have, I'd have taken you in. I'd have taken you in like a hen takes her chicks. I'd have drawn you to myself. 
if you only would have. But you wouldn't. And what he said next is chilling. Jesus said, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. It's dead. Now I've seen that happen. I was part of a group once. It was a church where nobody ever visited, nobody ever came. Nobody came. I can't remember years and years and years and years, not one visitor came. And there was finally a group of us who said, you know what? This isn't right. We got to get something going. So we started meeting on Tuesday nights and praying. And God started it out with three or four of us and went up to about six of us. And we would go and just pray and pray and pray. Ask God to bring life to that church. And there was one critical meeting we had. And at the meeting, the rest of the people in the church said, Why are you praising on Tuesday night? Don't you know we only pray on Wednesday night? (laughs) We said to them, We're going to pray on Tuesday night that God will wake the church up and bring life to it. And we're going to go out Wednesday night and visit people who need to be visited. You pray for us while we go. And they said, we won't pray for you while you go. You only pray on Wednesday night here. We didn't retaliate. We didn't say anything. But in about six weeks... One fellow moved to Georgia. Uh, one fellow moved to Pennsylvania. One fellow moved to Frewsburg. Another fellow moved away. And the last guy moved to East Shelby. In six weeks, we were all gone. Just like that. And God said, that's it. And I had to go back there for something. It was a Tuesday night, and I walked in there, and where I'd heard people pouring out their hearts and praying and asking God for life and revival, it was dead silence. And I thought what Jesus said, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, and the kingdom is taken from you and given to people bearing the fruit thereof. So God came over here with us. God came over there in Pennsylvania and God went all around but he left that house desolate and dead. So Ezekiel got quite a lesson didn't he? He sure saw things he wasn't expecting. God took him by the hair and said take a look. That's why I said I'm done. Now you know what they were doing. And now, Ezekiel, watch this. He came off the mercy seat, no more mercy, into the courtyard right next to the altar. You can still come to that altar and get fixed. No, I'm going to the door. I'm about to leave. Will you do something before I leave? No. I'm going to go to the Mount of Olives and linger there. And Jesus would linger there himself. Because where did he pray? Gethsemane is on the Mount of Olives. As Jesus lingered there for the souls of men because he's the same God. You know what I'm saying, that the God who came off of that ark was Jesus. Same God. He's used to lingering and waiting and trying to have mercy on people. And so that's what Ezekiel saw. And the end of it is verse 24. Afterwards the Spirit took me up, brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God to Chaldea, to them of the captivity. So the vision I had seen went up from me. And I spake to them of the captivity, all things the Lord has shown me. God's left the Mount of Olives and he's got Ezekiel's hair in his hand and he went back to Chaldea. He left Jerusalem behind. In Chaldea, there's four boys, Shadrach, 
Meshach, and then to go and Daniel. Faithful boys. And God's going to pour his spirit into those boys and they're going to walk right in the middle of a fire. Untouched. And Daniel be thrown in the lion's den. Untouched. Because God went to Chaldea and left his house abandoned. Sounds like a pretty sad story, doesn't it? There's a little thing I skipped. Next week we'll go back and see what I skipped intentionally. And we'll change the whole story. So we'll go back next week and pick up what we intentionally went over. Because Ezekiel didn't go home and go, oh man, this is bad. He did, but he had some good news. Next week we'll go on. Thank you. Thank you.